0: going to be in a variety of passages again this morning, so we don't have one text necessarily to turn to. Oops. Perhaps one of, if not the most recognizable line from all of Shakespeare's works comes from Romeo and Juliet's, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Of course, in that text, uh, Juliet was grieving the fact that Romeo was part of the family that he was, and thus they could not be together, so she wished that his name was different so that they could be together, because, hey, it's still the same person, so what's in a name Sometimes names and titles carry varying weights of significance to us. We, there are some names that are just perhaps common and we don't, we don't think of them as being significant. Other names that have these titles that, that bear more weight and more significance. But there's a reality that comes to play when, when certain names and certain titles are restricted to certain positions, they begin to carry more weight. If these names and titles were distributed to all, they would lose their weight and their significance. If everyone had the title of mayor of the city, well, that would mean very little to our mayor, Mike Moore, that he had that title as well, right? That, that, that title has significance when it is limited to certain individuals. If everyone in a company had the title president and CEO, at the very least, it would create confusion And at worst, it would cause all-out chaos. So we recognize that titles and names are, in fact, important. And we recognize them as such. Well, there is a title that has been given to Jesus, which we can often forget the significance of that title. When we talk about Jesus, even just when we say His name, often what we say is Jesus... Christ, right? We say Jesus Christ. It's, we have this name Christ is on our banners. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ. Well, what does that mean? What is it that, what is it, what's in that name? What does it mean? What does it communicate? In high school, I remember having a conversation where we were sitting in a, uh, a youth group session there, and the, the teacher was teaching, and someone raised their hand and asked, what, what was Jesus's last name? And the uh, Student sitting next to me turned to me with this kind of perplexed look on his face and says, Of course, it's Christ. Christ is his last, Jesus Christ. It's his last name. And he was dead serious. That's, that's exactly what he thought. It was just kind of a, well, duh kind of moment. It's Christ is his last name. But is Christ Jesus' last name? No, it's not. Christ is a title. And there's so much more significance behind that than simply being a surname. Have you ever thought about why it is that we don't see Christ attached to any other name in all of Scripture? We don't see that anywhere. Why is that the case? Why do we not see this this word attached to any other name than to Jesus? What is the significance of that title? Well, our launching point for this series, this uh, three part series that we're going through right now, who is he? Who is this individual? It comes from Luke chapter 2, verse 11, where the angels were proclaiming to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Last week we saw that Jesus is the long awaited Savior, the one who could save us from our sins. Next week, we will discuss the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, we see that He is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. But what does that mean? Again, well, He's going to provide for us some definitions for us and then launching into the theological significance of that term, of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. The word for Christ in the Greek is a, actually a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is Mashiach, which we would say in English as Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that He is the Messiah. Okay, well then what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Why is that title of significance? Well, the word Messiah means anointed one. The idea of anointed carrying a, carried a very specific meaning in the Old Testament Scriptures. Today, when people talk about the anointing of the Spirit, they typically are referring to some manner of, of, of charismatic, either speaking in tongues or something of that nature of just like, oh, if someone's received the anointing. Or if someone is a gifted preacher, they might say, oh, they are anointed of the Lord in some way. But that's not what the anointed one meant in the Old Testament Scriptures. That is not not the case in biblical terms. To anoint someone was a physical act of, of pouring oil on the head. This signified that God had chosen that person for a specific purpose. And the anointing was a symbolic act of installing an individual into an office. Installing them into a position. There were three offices that fulfilled Fulfilling those offices required anointing. We had the office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of king. We see some examples of this from uh, some very well-known characters throughout the Old Testament. when, When Elisha was going to replace Elijah as the prophet in Israel, Elijah anointed him. Aaron, the first high priest, was anointed to his position, and each priest afterwards were anointed in like manner. Samuel anointed both Saul and later David to be king in Israel, and the anointing of David is particularly significant as it not only signaled that David was to be king, but that Saul's reign would be coming to an end. So we have these different examples of these men in the Old Testament receiving. This anointing, but all Israel looked forward to the day when the anointed one would come. The anointed one to deliver Israel and save his people from their sins. If you would turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 61. And this is actually the text that that Jesus quoted in our scripture reading this morning in, in Luke chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning with verse 1. This is written from the perspective of the coming Messiah. The word of the Lord says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, the coming anointed one, the one who would fulfill that, who would do these things to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the eyes of the blind. Can you imagine the weight of the significance that the people would have understood when Jesus Christ opened up that scroll and he read that text and then he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, I am that anointed one. I am the Messiah. I am here. He has come. Today we're going to be bouncing around a few more passages this morning because what I want us to see today is that the office of Messiah, what the anointed one, what is it that he came to do as, as he fulfilled these, these offices, these roles that we talked about, of prophet, of priest, and king, and how Jesus as the Messiah, he fulfills each of those. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. So we're going to look at a few texts this morning. Show us that Jesus Christ, He is the Messiah, perfectly fulfilling those roles. First, Jesus is the prophet. As God's Messiah, He is the prophet. First, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks authoritatively and infallibly for God. A prophet is someone who speaks authoritatively and infallibly for God. When a prophet says, Thus saith the Lord, what comes out of his mouth is the very word of God in that instance. It is what God has communicated to the people through the mouth of the prophets. We see significant instructions about prophets in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But in this text we also see a significant prophecy from Moses. Moses about a prophet who would come after him. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. We're going to be there for a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and beginning with verse 15. This is Moses speaking. He writes, "'The the Lord your God will raise up for you "'a prophet like me among among you from your brothers. "'It is to him you shall listen.'" Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Hareb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that's, that's like Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to, to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So here's the promise of God through Moses. Who, some could argue that Moses is the, the greatest Old Testament prophet. Many would take that position. but Moses says there will come a day when God's gonna raise up a prophet among you like Moses, and God is going to speak through him. God will put his words in the prophet's mouth, and whoever does not listen to him, God will require it of him. In the same text, there were some problems anticipated when we think about prophets, okay, if we have this responsibility to listen to prophets. Well, how do we know who the true prophets are and who the false prophets are? Because as many people come saying, thus saith the Lord, well, how do we know which is which? So let's, let's continue on and read in Deuteronomy 18, beginning with verse 20, but with the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, Well, how shall we know what the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, this is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the instructions from Moses about prophets and about prophecy, if a prophet prophesies falsely, and that prophet clearly was not a true prophet. And this is this is actually how we still tell the difference today, by the way. There, there's many people who claim the gift of prophecy today, and they, they say this, they say that I'm prophesying this, I'm prophesying that. And a lot oftentimes it is vague prophecies. They don't give anything very specific. But but today's so-called prophets, many have numerous prophecies that have been demonstrably proven false. So we need not be shy in declaring that these individuals are not true prophets. It has been evidence, it has been, it has been shown through their words that they are not true prophets. They have spoken it presumptuously, and we need not be afraid of these individuals. But this test of a prophet is critical. This test of a prophet is critical, because if Jesus is the Messiah, and if part of being the Messiah means that Jesus is the true prophet... Well, that means that Jesus, all of his predictions about the future must be true, or else he is a false prophet. So then that makes us ask the question Did Jesus make any predictions about the future that ended up being proven true or not? In of course, the answer is yes. Jesus made numerous predictions. In fact, Jesus spoke often and specifically about the nature of his own death. I'm going to rattle off some, some passages here rather quickly in rapid-fire uh, session about Jesus' own predictions about his death. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, "...the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed." And on the third day, be raised. Later on in the same chapter, verse 34, Jesus said, or the the text records for us, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. Later in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 and following, the text reads, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise." Remarkable detail about his own death, about what he would receive at the hands of the Romans and the chief priests and the scribes. And in John fourteen twenty nine, Jesus said these words, I now have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He says, this is why I'm telling you. I'm telling you, I'm predicting these things so that you'll believe that you will know who I am, that I am who exactly who I claim to be. I am the Messiah. So Jesus did prove to be a true prophet. He spoke accurately about his own death. But not only did Jesus speak of future events and accurately predict them, but he also fulfilled the role of a prophet in that he spoke the words of God. Moses wrote that God would put his words in the prophet's mouth. And the Gospel of John is very concerned about Jesus' identity, about who Jesus is is and John writes in John chapter 1 and these words are significant words about the nature of who Jesus Christ is the word became flesh this is John 1 14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth So not only is Jesus Christ a a prophet in that He speaks the words of God, but but He is the very Word of God to the people. He is God's self-revelation to mankind. He is the Word incarnate. Jesus said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. He says, I am divine, I am. Come into the world. I am the Word Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus Christ is not only a prophet that speaks for God. Jesus Christ is God. And the words that he says are the very word of God. He is the self-revelation of God. He has made himself known. He has declared who God is. We know so much about who our God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. We read the text of Moses speaking about this prophet that would come. Well, in Acts chapter 3, Peter declares to us that Jesus is that Messiah, that Jesus is the one that Moses spoke of. Acts chapter 3, verse 17 and following, we find the words of Peter when he says, "'And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ,' again, his Messiah, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled.' Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come upon the presence of the Lord and that He may send the, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, And the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and from those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter says that this prophet that Moses declared would come is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the prophet. He is the one that not only Moses spoke about, but, but Samuel and all the rest of all the other prophets, they all looked forward to this day the coming of the Messiah. And the charge and the the response that the people must give, the responsibility of the people is to repent and to believe in Christ. God has spoken. Jesus has come. We must heed the word of the Lord. It's interesting to me today that there are many who want to regard Jesus as a prophet, but just a prophet. Right? If you encounter uh, those uh, who cling to Islam, they will say, oh yes, Mo- uh, Jesus, he-, he was a prophet. There are many who would say, oh yeah, I believe that he was a good man, he was a prophet. But for them to say that, that Jesus is a prophet and nothing more, they would have to conclude that he is a false prophet. Prophet. Because Jesus claimed to be much more. And if he was a true prophet, then he wasn't just a prophet. Because again, he claimed to be more. So we, we must never let anyone say that he was just a prophet. For if he was just a prophet, he was a false prophet. But Jesus, as the Christ, as the Messiah, he is the prophet. And as the prophet, he speaks authoritatively, and we must heed his words. Well, not only is he the prophet, but he is also the great high priest. Another aspect of his messiahship is the, being the priest. The role of the prophet was to be God's voice to man. Well, the role of the priest was to be man's voice to God. The priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises from the people to God. He served as the mediator between God and man. The common man could not approach God or enter into the tabernacle or the temple, into the, into the holy place or the most holy place. To enter into the holy place meant death for anyone other than the priests and only the high priest, and then only then once a year could they enter into the holy of holies or the most holy place the most sacred part of the tabernacle and then later the temple. And they could only enter again once a year and then only after an extensive cleansing ritual. The purpose for this was that God wanted to communicate that he was infinitely holy and that sin could not abide in his presence. The only way to come before him was to be holy. And the high priest was to signify that through the elaborate cleansing ritual and only entering in once a year. Since we are not holy, again, this, pre- this presents a significant problem for us. We cannot enter into God's presence because we are not holy, but God gave the priests as a means to make a way to God. They would offer sacrifices for sins. They would offer the prayers of the people up to the Lord and, and symbolize those prayers in the incense that would be burned as it was rising up to be a symbol of the prayers that were being offered up to the Lord. According to the Old Testament, the line of the priests were to come through one family, the tribe of Levi, specifically in the lineage of Aaron, the high priest. However, God also made a provision that there to be a priesthood outside of the Aaronic line. And this priesthood is known as the priesthood of Melchizedek. That is a name you're not familiar with, Melchizedek. He was a a priest in Abraham's time. This is is before the giving of the law. Pre-Moses, pre-Egypt, pre-all those things. During Abraham's lifetime, we have this man, Melchizedek, who was a priest to the Most High God, and we know very little about him. But God promised that he would send forth his Messiah, and that Messiah would not only be a prophet, not only be a king, but that he would be a priest and a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's what we find in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This was the promise that that the Messiah, the Anointed One, would be a priest. This is a theme that's not really expanded upon significantly until we get to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. There's a few texts that we're going to look at through there. Hebrews is a wonderful book that just unfolds the beauties of what God has has shown to us and what the what many aspects of the Old Testament law reveals about Christ and how Christ is a fulfillment of many Old Testament things. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 9. What does it mean that Jesus is a priest? I have three ideas for us to consider that it, what it means that Jesus is the priest. And the first is that he offered once and for all the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places, year or every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ offered himself as the sacrifice for sins. Only priests can offer Sacrifices. I mean, this is a critical thing, right? Because we, I mean, we see this even in the uh, Old Testament with the story of Saul when, uh, when Saul was supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come to, to make a burnt offering to the Lord and he was growing impatient waiting for Samuel so he decided to make the burnt offering himself. God judged him for those actions. The priest was the one who was supposed to make the offering And Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and He has offered up Himself. He is both the the priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice that is offered, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In doing so, He not only made the full and final sacrifice, but He has made the way to God for us. He has opened the way for mankind to draw near to God. and this is the second thing that, that Christ accomplishes for us in his high priestly service, is that he opens the way for mankind to draw near to God. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could again could enter into the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle. When Jesus died on the cross, that, that veil in the temple was torn in two, signifying that there was now a way to the Father that we could now communicate with him once again, that we could go directly to him. And that is through the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. We can draw near to God because what a Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, same book of Hebrews chapter 10, we find this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I'm skipping down to verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, something that no Jewish man could ever do before save for the priest, save for the high priest only once a year. We now have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to God because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. When once we were created to be God's delegation on earth, to be his representatives, to have dominion over the earth, sin messed all that up. Sin messed up our relationship with God, messed up our ability to commune with God. But now through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, that way has been opened up again to us. We can go into the holy places before the very presence of God to find help in a time of need, boldly entering, boldly standing before Him. When once we could never stand before Him on our own two feet, now we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, entering into His presence. Reminded of the song, uh, the lyrics from the song, it was finished upon that cross that we sing here semi-regularly. Boldly I approach my Father clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. Because of what Christ did as our great high priest, there is now no more guilt to carry. No more burden for sin. Because Jesus paid it all. And finally, in regards to his priesthood, he intercedes for his children. I'm going over now to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and following. The the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them there 's many things going on in this passage. In the context of this, this is where he 's talking about the priesthood of being in, in the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. Part of the argument here is that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is eternal. The, the human priests that served the people, they lived their lives, they died, and they were gone, and they could no longer continue their office. Excuse me. But Jesus lives on. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he did not, uh, the scripture says that he no longer was to taste decay. There's no more that death could do to him. Therefore, he holds his priesthood permanently. He, He is therefore able to guarantee salvation because he always lives to make intercession for his saints. He won't let us go. He won't let us slip. He continually sits in the presence of God as our representative, praying on our behalf. This is the priestly work of the Christ, the Messiah. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and finally, he is the Messiah, he is the King. I'm only going to touch on this briefly because next week we're going to be kind of expanding upon this theme a little bit more fully as we talk about what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord, but just for today, the kingship of Christ is a significant aspect of His messiahship. There were many kings in Israel, but Jesus is the King. It was promised that the messiah would be king going all the way back to to jacob's blessings of his son in egypt in genesis chapter 49 we see jacob prophesying and, and giving this blessing to his children and when he speaks of judah he says that the scepter would never depart from his hand the messiah the king would come through the line of judah Later on, God promises David that that his house and kingdom would be established forever. Psalm chapter 2 has God establishing his king in Zion. And Psalm 110 shows us that the Messiah would, would rule and reign until all his enemies were placed under his feet. When the angel appeared to Mary, he told her that the child that would be born would be born to her, and he said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and through 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And among Jesus' first words as he entered into his public ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was declaring to them that the kingdom has come. It's not the kind of king and kind of kingdom that we typically would think of in an earthly sense, right? Jesus didn't come with swords drawn, banners flying, riding upon the horses. No. in fact, he would later refuse to be made king by a mob. They, the mob saw the miracles that he was doing. They, they saw the feeding of the 5,000. They saw these, these great things that he was doing, healing the people. And they said, that's the guy we want as our king. And they were ready to come and make him their king by force. That is the language of, of uh, John. I didn't write down the reference. I think it's John chapter 6, if I recall. Where the people were going to come and make him king by force. Jesus says, no, that is not why I'm here. You want to make me king because I gave you food, but there's so much more that you need than simply to have your bellies filled. When Pilate was questioning him, Jesus said that, my kingdom is not of this world, And by that, he meant that it did not have its origin, it didn't have its source in this world. Nevertheless, he affirmed to Pilate that he was, in fact, a king, the king. When Pilate says, oh, so you are a king, Jesus said, you have said so. He affirmed that he is the king. And though he did not come to set up an earthly kingdom at his first coming, he did establish his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And though he has not commanded us to conquer nations with political might, there is a day coming when all the nations will bow before Jesus Christ. Because he is the king. Jesus Christ will one day establish his kingdom and he will rule and reign just as it was promised in the Old Testament and just as we see prophesied in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is King. And as King, He demands our obedience. As King, we owe Him our allegiance. He is King. Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. And He is the King. He is the Christ, the Messiah. I mentioned earlier that John is particularly concerned with the identity of who Jesus is, and I'm going to close with this text. John's purpose statement for writing the gospel of John. Why did he write what he wrote? Well, he gives us his reasons in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the one that was to come. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus is the Christ. Unto us was born a Savior who is Christ, who is the Messiah. He is the prophet, the one foretold that would come speaking your words. His incarnation was your very self revelation to mankind. We must heed his words. He is the priest. The one who intercedes for mankind, the one who has made a way to you, the Father, the one who has offered up the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. It's the sacrifice that we remember as we, every time we observe this Lord's table that we observed this morning. And He is the King, He is the sovereign ruler. He is seated on his throne at your right hand. He rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. He's king over your church. One day, when you establish him as king on this earth, he will rule and reign over all the nations. And as we stretch forward into eternity, he remains the sovereign king over all. Thank you for this Messiah, the promised one, that he has come. Pray that we can rejoice in knowing that Christ, the Messiah, has come. Pray these things in the name of this Messiah, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.